Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, um, so as today's guest has noted, in the early 1930s, a twice-divorced American socialite wrote the following in a letter to her beloved. Quote, I wish you had sent me the clippings about the diamond in my glass coat. I have a small diamond that clips in my hair, which HRH gave me, and the coat is cellophane. End quote. Yes, friends, her coat was cellophane. And the author of this letter was, and perhaps still is considered, one of the chicest women in the world, none other than Wallace Simpson, writing to the Prince Edward, Duke of Windsor at the time, and later King Edward VIII, who would abdicate the British throne to marry Wallace in 1937. And I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with the tale of Wallace and Edward, but if not, essentially as an American divorcee, she was not considered, quote-unquote, suitable as a candidate to become the queen consort, and Edward made the choice to give up his rule in order to be with her. After the abdication, the two lived as the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and were considered by many to be one of the most fashionable, but also, sidebar, controversial oh, yeah. couples in the <laughs> world. But Edward's love of fashion almost rivaled Wallace's. <laughs> but this is not the tale of the Windsor's wardrobe today, dress listeners. Today, we are getting to the bottom of the question of why, oh, why was one of the most well-dressed women in the world wearing cellophane? And today, Claire Sauro joins us to discuss her work on the popularity of cellophane in fashion of the 30s. Claire is the director of the Robert and Penny Fox Historic Costume Collection and an assistant professor of design and art history at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Claire, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Thank you for having me, April. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, this is an episode that you and I have been chatting about doing for a little bit of time now. So I'm very pleased that we're finally sitting down to, to do so. And I think it might come as a little bit of a surprise to some of our listeners that cellophane, which of course now is kind of considered this you know, somewhat banal packaging product, well... Back in the day, it used to be considered this ultra-glamorous, kind of coveted symbol of modernity. But before we get to cellophane's adoption by high fashion, I'm hoping that you could tell us a little bit about the material itself. What exactly is cellophane? How is it made? When did it first appear on the market? Sure. Um, <laughs> let's get the science out of the way. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a chemist, so... I might butcher these terms, but cellophane is a trade name. It is the trade name for a glossy, transparent film of cellulose xanthate, which is regenerated cellulose. And chemically, this is the same as viscose rayon, which is surprising to a lot of people. The only difference between the two is in their method of manufacture. And uh, in this case, the cellulose xanthate, the solution is extruded through a spinneret into a filament to produce a rayon thread, or processed into a sheet, and that is how you create cellophane. Today, the term cellophane is only used for cellulose xanthate film. However, this distinction didn't occur until the 1950s. And prior to this, 
The term cellophane also included cellulose acetate film, which is a similar material also produced from regenerated cellulose, but differing slightly in chemical composition. Cellophane was first discovered in 1908, and within a decade, it was being used as a luxury wrapping material in France. The American chemical company DuPont acquired the right to the name. So in the 1930s, which is the period we're talking about, cellophane proper is owned by DuPont, and they began production in the United States in 1923. DuPont certainly dominated the market, but it's important to know that other manufacturers in the United States were creating cellulose film under other names, such as Kodapak, which is uh, Eastman Kodak, and Silfrap, which was the product by Sylvania Industrial Corporation. So today, cellophane is kind of a generic term, and it's applied to all sorts of clear plastic film. But in the 1930s, it was something very specific. And for today, Let's just call everything cellophane to keep it simple. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and when they developed cellophane, what were some of the initial intended uses? You mentioned packaging. That was kind of the big one, right? But there were others? Yes, that, that was really an accident. That is, to me, the most interesting thing of all. Cellophane was an accident. The chemist Jacques Brandenberger discovered it. He was trying to create a waterproof textile to make Mm. um, tape coverings. And he named this La Cellophane. He was working in France. And the name is a reference to both cellulose and the Greek word phaeno, which means shining or light. So cellophaeno becomes cellophane. And this cellophane was not actually waterproof, but it was a flexible, transparent sheet of viscose that made a very appealing, glossy wrapping. So it was something that was used in France to wrap up small luxury items like soap or chocolates, cosmetics. Cody Perfumes was actually one of their their very early manufacturers who utilized um, cellophane wrapping. It was very, very expensive at this time, though. So we're, we're talking about elite products for elite consumers. When DuPont began their production of cellophane, it was still very expensive. It was close to $5 a pound, which is a ton of money in the 20s. And they couldn't convince anybody to use it. So it didn't really take off until the late 1920s, with 1927, when they introduced moisture-proof cellophane that kept things from going stale. And that's when their sales tripled, and suddenly you see it being used for keeping food fresh, for cigarettes, and widely adopted for the sale of lingerie, hosiery, um, all sorts of cosmetics and and other products. It's still expensive, but it's a lot less prohibited than it had been earlier. How did the public kind of react to some of these novel materials at the time? Cellophane, of course, and then like we start to see the entree of plastics more and more into the market. What was the public reaction to these new materials? Well, it's it's a little mixed. If it is frankly synthetic, it tends to be embraced. If the material is confident in its synthetic origins, um, it has more acceptability. If this synthetic product, the plastic, is trying to emulate something that is a traditional luxury material, so if you're using celluloid and trying to make it look like tortoiseshell, that just reads as cheap. That just reads as, as phony. Whereas um, something like cellophane, it really doesn't translate to anything else. There's no other product like it. So it's seen as 
modern technology, which it was, it was very modern. Um, it was seen as futuristic. It was, it was really very alluring and fascinating to, to the public. By the end of the 1920s, retailers were noticing that things that were wrapped in cellophane sold at a much higher rate than comparable products. So it really became a desirable kind of accessory to the consumer product. And some people saw this as, as a part of kind of crass consumerism, that you're kind of glossing up everyday items and, and charging more money for them. But generally, the public saw this as a miracle of modern chemistry and emblematic of progress and hope for the future. Yeah. Well, and of course, that desirability, I guess, would kind of weave its way into the fashion world. Uh, pun intended there when I say weave. <laughs> would, would you tell us a little bit about some of cellophane's earliest uses outside of this realm of kind of packaging? So as you would imagine, people are really fascinated with this. There's, there's really nothing quite like it. So artists and designers pick up on cellophane pretty early. You do see some very early cellophane textiles being produced in the 1920s by the Bauhaus weavers, uh, Annie Albers and Gunther Stossel. And they were incorporating slit strips of cellophane film into their textiles, which are primarily produced for wall coverings. So we're talking about um, interior home furnishing or industrial wall coverings. Um, they're not looking to create textiles for fashion, but it is a very important development in the history of cellophane fashion that this is this is an early development. And at the same time, you have photographers like Edward Steichen and a little later Cecil Beaton using um, crumpled sheets of cellophane as a backdrop for their, their celebrity portraits, uh, portraits of actors, actresses, debutantes, just general society, high society. You, you see these portraits with these gigantic swags of crumpled cellophane that they're otherworldly. They, they are very strange and wonderful, and they are really the epitome of high style portraiture right at the end of the 20s and the first few years of the 1930s. By the time you get a little deeper into the 1930s, that cellophane backdrop is so widely disseminated. You see all sorts of photographers using it, and it's pretty standard in fashion magazines as well. Today, we don't recognize that. We're like, there's that weird, like, shower curtain thing behind that. <laughs> it's like, like, what is that? But once you, your eye adjusts and you know that, like, oh, of course, that's a big swag of cellophane. Once you're aware of it, you see it everywhere. So of course, this photography practice creeps into set design for stage and film. And they're, they're using it much the same way. And probably the culmination of this um, would be the sets for Four Saints and Three Acts, which was this the first avant-garde opera in the United States. Um, and the sets were designed by Florine Stettheimer, who is a fascinating person. And she used just very large swags and of blue cellophane and had uh, cellophane trees constructed as well. It was apparently a fire hazard, but <laughs> it is still uh, on with it. Pay no mind <laughs> to this, friends. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so Four Saints and Three Acts made its debut in spring of 1934, and that makes perfect sense because by that point, cellophane is everywhere. You see it in 
lucky strike cigarette ads. You see it in cartoons in The New Yorker. You see it on sets for fashion photography and Hollywood films. And it's name-checked in the best-selling novel The Thin Man and by Cole Porter in the song You're the Top, which is a song that I think most everybody has heard at least once. But if you've never listened to the lyrics, the song is essentially a list of all the it things from 1934. And it's an interesting mix of both high and low culture. So you have the pairing of a Shakespeare sonnet with a Bendel bonnet. And so you have, you know, Shakespeare up with a New York retailer. And what is interesting is cellophane is emphasized above in that particular stanza where it's mentioned, it's above the National Gallery and Garbo's salary. Garbo being, of course, <laughs> actress Greta Garbo, who is at the height of her fame and exceedingly well-paid. <laughs> so cellophane is right up there with oat glam pop culture, basically. <laughs> yes. It's a fascinating moment in 1934 where cellophane is artistic, it's avant-garde, it's aristocratic, it's luxurious, and also it's mainstream. So it has this really weird mix of connotations and associations that makes it just so exciting and desirable. It's just a very strange moment in history. Yeah. And this is, of course, kind of like it's heyday when we see it pop into the realm of, of high fashion and couture. So who were some of the early fashion designers to embrace cellophane and how are they incorporating it in their work? Just like the artists in the 1920s, you had some more adventurous fashion designers experimenting with cellophane in the 1920s. You have the House of Calosur and Madeline Madeline using strips of cellophane both for embroidery and to embellish lace. It's very fashionable in 1921 or so. And you see it transparent cellophane, but also shiny, opaque black and red cellophane was, was cited in the sources. However, this is not a major trend and it subsides very quickly as fashion in the 1920s moves toward a, a sleeker silhouette. Um, at this point, the cellophane is desirable, but the technology hasn't quite caught up to what um, the designers would like to do with it. However, milliners found that the, the cellophane could be slit into strips and worked like straw. So hats traditionally are made out of straw and cellophane straw would become a standard material and it will continue to be used for several decades. So this is its own separate category of research. So it's pretty much unconnected to the cellophane fashion craze of 1934. So jumping forward, in August 1933, you have the couturiers showing their collections for winter 1934. And this is when you start to see a group of startling new fashion textiles being shown. These textiles are woven with strips of cellophane into the weave itself. So it's not applied. It's not embellishment. It's physically strips woven into the warp and weft of the textile. And within a few months, the use of these cellophane textiles and cellophane embellishment was so prevalent that Harper's Bazaar actually deemed it a season of cellophane everywhere, which I love. It's <laughs> pronouncement that's just so much fun. Elsa Schiaparelli was very enthusiastic about cellophane, and she was using both the textiles woven with the cellophane as well as the more traditional embroidery methods. 
And there are three named cellophane textiles that are associated with Schiaparelli, which were all, by the way, produced by the French textile manufacturer called Combe. Now, April, I know that the Dress Podcast loves words. Yes, we do. (laughs) So the first of these big cellophane textiles was shown in August of 1933, and it was named anthracite. And anthracite is a name in reference to a type of hard and glittery coal. And anthracite was a rayon velvet with strips of black cellophane glinting uh, woven into the pile. And this is probably the most influential of all of these cellophane textiles, because pretty soon this is going to be the standard textile that if, if a manufacturer is going to produce one cellophane textile, it's going to be a cellophane velvet. Now, black is very typical very early on, but you know, a little bit later, you see all sorts of colors being launched and by all sorts of different manufacturers. As a matter of fact, the museum at FIT has several absolutely gorgeous examples in their textile collection produced by the manufacturer, J.B. Martin. And those are, some are black, some are a deep red. There's like a peachy rose gold color, and there's a kind of grassy green, and and it looks like Easter grass. Another important Calcumbe textile was La Boresque, which translates to the squall. So like a squall, a storm. And this is the group, my favorite. It was a mixture of cellophane and lastex. And lastex was also a revolutionary material. It's an elastic material introduced by the U.S. Rubber Company just a few years earlier in 1931. And it had been primarily used for swimwear and lingerie, uh, like girdles, basically. So by combining the strips of cellophane with lastex, you get a stretchy fabric that Scaparelli is using to produce stretchy, glittering, form-fitting evening gowns that require no fastening. So this is revolutionary. Um, this is a pre-spandex world. So to have a lastex and cellophane evening gown is, is pretty remarkable. And then the third of the group was introduced in August of 1934, and that is rhodophane. Um, This was highly publicized and often referred to as a glass fabric. And this is introduced for the winter 1934-35 collection. And name um, combines the prefix rhodo, that the chemical nomenclature indicates that it's derived from cellulose acetate, and the pheno or fane of cellophane. So it's, you know, uh, basically clear cellulose acetate. So it's a completely transparent textile. And this had been developed by Calcombe in the 20s, but had not been used in any meaningful way until Schiaparelli embraced it. And as as I mentioned, the novelty with rhodophane was that it was completely transparent um, and it resembled glass. But it was not commercially successful like anthracite or labaresque because it was brittle compared to the cellophane. And just very few women actually <laughs> purchased rhodophane gowns or jackets or tunics or what have you. At the time, though, rhodophane, cellophane, and glass were often used interchangeably in you know, the primary sources. So this is a very confusing moment in the history of fashion. Now, in secondary sources, uh, Schiaparelli usually gets the credit for the use of cellophane, and it is usually linked to her surrealistic designs that we're all absolutely enamored with and well acquainted with. 
However, if you look at the primary sources, if you go back and you look at Women's Wear Daily, if you look at Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and the French publications like Le Mode, she was definitely in the forefront, but others were experimenting with cellophane just about at the same time. So early examples were produced by Lucien Leilong, who produced an absolutely stunning evening ensemble ornamented with cellophane tassels, and Alix, who we later on know as Madame Grey, who produced a rubber evening coat embroidered with cellophane strips that was worn over a cellophane velvet gown. Marcel Rochat, who is not as well known, um, but was important in the 30s, he was absolutely enamored with all cellophane textiles. And he even produced a swimsuit of La Boresque for summer 1934, which was very influential in that just a year later, you have BVD, as we now know the underwear company, but BVD produced a swim, their own version of the swimsuit for the following summer for the American market. What I do find particularly fascinating is that American manufacturers had been experimenting with cellophane textiles at the same time as Colcombe and some of the French manufacturers, but they don't receive, they did not, and they still don't receive the credit or the acclaim for the trend. And this is a reflection, I mean, of the bias towards French design that dominated the American fashion industry during the 1930s. So you have somebody like Kiviet designing a gown in 1933 that is woven with silk sheen, which is a, a Sylvania product. And, you know, it makes a little minor blip in Women's Wear Daily, and that's it. And that same publication six months later is reporting how it's all Scaparelli and the French couturier. So there, there's this, even within the primary sources, there's discrepancies and confusion. Yeah, so today, I would say that Scaparelli, as you kind of already noted, is the, probably the person most associated with the use of cellophane. But she was using all types of other novel synthetic textiles as well. How does cellophane fit into her, her bigger use of synthetics at the time in haute couture? One of the things that's very interesting about Schiaparelli is that her designs were seen as this very unique combination of European tradition and American practicality. And this was seen as very daring and very modern, but it was also the best of both worlds. It made her business wildly profitable. And central to her concept of modernism was her enthusiasm for unusual textiles. And she embraced early semi-synthetic textiles such as rayon and acetate when they were not really seen as desirable. When these textiles were first introduced, they were developed as a surrogate for silk. And consequently, they were shunned by high fashion. They were seen as inferior products. There had been a push by the French rayon industry to convince couturiers to adopt the material in the late 20s, but it is really Scaparelli who gets the credit for making these, these materials acceptable to a couture clientele. Now, Scaparelli utilized fabrics from various manufacturers, but she's most closely aligned with um, the manufacturer I already mentioned, Colcombe. Colcombe was a ribbon manufacturer that had launched a synthetic textile division in the mid-20s. And it is with Colcombe that she launched some of her most influential textiles um, of the period. So one was called Tree Bark, which was a crinkled rayon, and another called Shishi, which was a ruffled and tucked crepe, also rayon. And uh, it was also Colcombe that was responsible for the very famous collection of textiles printed with Scaparelli's press clippings. Yes. 
the news, one day, one day that will enter my personal collection. If I can ever find one, I'm still on the hunt. I've said this on the show before. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I know. (laughs) Arguably, these textiles, particularly cellophane, was seen as avant-garde. Who were some of the wearers and adopters of cellophane creations? It's a who's who of fashionable 1930s, you know, mid-30s high fashion. The earliest adapters of cellophane fashion were a very interesting mix of the aristocratic and the artistic. So early on, you see these kind of professionally fashionable women like Daisy Fellows, the French-American heiress who was so outrageous in her personal style that Scaparelli dressed her for free. So she was certainly wearing the most outrageous Scaparelli garments. Yeah, she was a walking advertisement. <laughs> she was, and, and nobody was uh, more so than her. So we know that that's a given. Same with Natalie Paley, um, the exiled Russian princess and wife to couturier Lucien Lelong. She is expected to wear the latest fashions that her husband produces. She's, she's a walking billboard, again, much, much like Daisy Fellows. However, women who actually purchased these cellophane fashions included Mrs. Harrison Williams, who had been recently named the best-dressed woman in the world, the well-known heiress and patron of the arts, Peggy Guggenheim, and also standard oil heiress, uh, Millicent Rogers. And I want to point out, interestingly enough, all three of those women are Americans. The American clientele buying these fashions were very prominent. By 1935, you have more conservative, but still very elite and fashionable women adopting the trend. So you see a cellophane capelet in the trousseau of Princess Marina of Kent. And also uh, Wallace Simpson was reported to to have some cellophane garments in her, her wardrobe. There's a wonderful little letter that she refers to her cellophane. And also at this point, you see cellophane textiles being worn on screen by Hollywood film stars, such as Carol Lombard, Jean Harlow, Ginger Rogers. Cellophane textiles are absolutely stunning and perfectly suited for the black and white of film. You mentioned 1935, right? This is when we're seeing more and more and more cellophane being represented in the press. And around the same time, there's also all of these technological innovations, you know, in the production of cellophane. And typically, you would expect that that would be positive for the case for cellophane being used in fashion. But at the same time, perceptions within the public of cellophane began to shift a little bit. Would you tell us about that? At first, the cellophane fashions, the ones that you see emerging in 1934, are very limited. It's primarily those women who could afford to shop in Paris or buy the imported French fashions or the very expensive domestic versions that start to be produced by specialty shops and and high-end ready-to-wear designers in the United States. So Hattie Carnegie, Sally Milgram, Jay Thorpe, Herbert Sondheim, these are all manufacturers and retailers that that are producing cellophane fashion fairly early. And for the most part, despite those early innovations that I've mentioned, the American textile manufacturers are lagging behind in their production of these cellophane textiles. Um, And because of this, this combination of of scarcity of material and that very high price point 
this keeps cellophane, no matter how interested people are, um, this keeps cellophane out of reach for most consumers. However, by 1935, you have some technological advances in the production that are making the cost much lower. You're allowing this formerly expensive material to be marketed to a much wider audience. It's not immediate. It's not, it doesn't drop off a cliff, but you see it move from a very high, high level of high society to a well-to-do kind of middle-class bourgeois price point. And then it starts to move down market. In January of 1935, the cellophane prices were reduced for the 17th time. Oh, wow. <laughs> 17th time since DuPont began domestic manufacture in 1923. And just to give you a perspective, the prices were 86% lower than they had been. Wow. So it's from being outrageously expensive and luxurious to something that's really accessible. And because of this, you have this rush by lower, lower end manufacturers to incorporate cellophane. So by fall of 1935, you see a greater emphasis on sportswear, knitwear, and the junior market. DuPont seized on this opportunity to sell even more cellophane, and they start producing crochet patterns for hats, cuffs, collars, and even small household accessories like doilies and, <laughs> and lampshades. Which also seems dangerous. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also, they're probably very dangerous. You know, these are promoted to home crafters and, you know, marketed in Articles that that promised, uh, my favorite is one that the headline is Paris style in a homemade hat. And, you know, promotions like this are, are going to just basically kill off any alluring context that cellophane has. So this is what led to the demise of cellophane as a desirable material in high fashion. Yeah, it's very fascinating because this is such a brief window of time. It's almost like... Yes, we see it in the 20s a little bit, but then it's like this 33 to 35 and it like burned bright and then it like burned too bright and it burned itself out practically. That's a great summary. Yes. (laughs) And and burning really feels appropriate here. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It is so intense and so exciting and it's such a high and then it just comes dropping down to nothing. So you, you do see it kind of linger on for a little bit. There's a, in 1936, there's a fashion for bridal headpieces of transparent cellophane that kind of blips up. But for the most part, it's, it's done. <laughs> Did cellophane have any like fashionable reprisals after the 1930s at different points in time? Cellophane fades in popularity and it is, replaced essentially in the 40s and 50s by lurex, which is related. So metallic cellophane was strips of cellophane with a metallic kind of finish on top of it. Whereas lurex, if you've ever felt lurex, it's rigid and it's a little scratchy. Um, And that is because lurex is actually a strip of metal with a cellophane coating. Hmm. So they're kind of flip side of each other. But anyway, in the 50s in particular, um, if you wanted a shiny textile, it's almost certainly lurex. However, in the 60s, you see a fascination with synthetics coming in, um, or rather a fascination with plastics. So you see PVC and other plastics coming in. And cellophane gets brought back at that point as it has that, that shiny, you know, futuristic quality that people found appealing. 
But it's never really left after that. At the Fox Collection, we have a Scott Berry evening gown from the early 70s that is purple cellophane. We have an absolutely stunning Jeffrey Bean evening gown from the 90s that's a cellophane velvet. So when I'm trying to explain to my students what cellophane velvet looks like, I pull out that Jeffrey Bean. So I'm like, this is it. This is what it's about because it shimmers, but it's very fluid and just very sensual. But it's never reclaimed its social significance. It's never going to be what it was in 1934. So it's just going to be, without that context, it's just another product. It's interchangeable with Lorex or, or a metallic lame or some other material. So it, it, it's really that social, cultural context of 1934 that makes it so fascinating for me. Yeah. And it's specifically in the context of, quote unquote, modernity. It, it was the most modern thing of all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on contemporary fashion's current explorations of materiality. Do you have any favorite kind of like avant-garde materials that are in use currently that could kind of be the modern day equivalent of cellophane? Well, I'm primarily interested in that social and cultural context with cellophane. So, you know, I, I'm not so much focused on the materiality of it. However, I didn't mention how incredibly toxic it was to manufacture cellophane. It was toxic to the environment and the poor textile workers. So I, I am extremely interested in new materials that are more mindful of this, such as like mycelium leather or rather, you know, leather made from mushrooms, basically. So I am interested in it, but it's not my, my focus. We actually are trying to get um, some of the representatives from this company in Mexico called Deserto to come on, and they're doing cactus leather. And their whole process is like sustainable and organic from beginning to end. So stay tuned for that, dress listeners. <laughs> so Claire, you mentioned your collection at Drexel. I was hoping that you could tell our listeners a little bit about it and maybe speak about any upcoming projects that you might have going on that you'd like to promote. Well, thank you, April. Um, I am the director of the Robert and Penny Fox Historic Costume Collection at Drexel University, which is in Philadelphia. And it is one of the oldest, if not possibly the oldest, I'm not entirely sure, but it is definitely one of the oldest university costume collections in the United States, dating back to the founding of the Drexel Institute in 1891. Wow. It, also one of the largest, we currently estimate our collection to hold 20,000 objects. We are working on an inventory, so I don't know an exact count. Our collection is primarily women's fashion, but we truly have a little bit of everything. So garments, accessory, te textiles, photographs, illustrations, really anything. We do not currently have a searchable online database, but if your listeners would like to see some of our holdings, we are on Google Arts and Culture. You can just you know, type in Fox Historic Costume in the search bar and it will pop right up. And we also have a very popular Instagram account. So please follow us. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Yay. I am not responsible for the Instagram. Monica, our collections manager, does that. So I feel like I can say, I think it's fabulous. Um, I, I don't have a head for social media. So um, I'm grateful for her work. I am currently working on an exhibition that will open up in November 2022. And this is on fashion and biodiversity, hence my interest in mycelium leather. Yep. And I'm also revisiting my earlier research on Bernard Newman, who is the designer best known for the central for Astaire and Rogers films at RKO. 
My cellophane research overlaps quite a bit with Bernard Newman's career. So as you can tell, I just can't seem to leave the mid 30s. I'm just <laughs> up here. <laughs> and that's okay. I'm having a great time. Yeah. And, and Hollywood is um, actually one of your specialty areas of interest as well in general, right? In general, yes. I'm a little obsessed, a lot obsessed with the intersection between American fashion and Hollywood costume and how they interacted with each other in the 1930s. And what I'm hoping to do with my Newman research is to integrate the two in a more comprehensive way. So you see there are there are histories of film costume and then there's histories of American fashion. But for someone like Bernard Newman, who started out at Bergdorf Goodman and then went out to Hollywood and then came back and you know, he's traveling back and forth. So he's not really one or the other, he's both. And to me, that is fascinating. It's it's just so ambiguous. And so to tease out exactly how these two competing worlds are interacting is, is really, that that is really what makes me tick. Yeah, it's, it, 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 we see it again and again, not just with Newman's work, but also of course, Adrian. And there are several other fashion designers who kind of like were coming back and forth from Hollywood while also still working in mainstream American fashion. Muriel King was another one. Bonnie Cashin, of course, was designing in Hollywood for a while too. So it is a very rich area to research. I love it. I love it too. (laughs) (laughs) Claire, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. And I think that our listeners now, when they're looking through the 1930s, now they're just going to see, as you say, cellophane everywhere. Cellophane, cellophane everywhere. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Claire, thank you so much for sharing this fascinating original work on cellophane's use in fashion. This is a topic that hasn't ever really been written about, and yet it's all right there in the pages of the fashion magazines. Again, as we say, dress listeners, there's so much fun, new, and interesting work to be done in our field. A ton. And Cass, when I was preparing to speak to Claire, I did a little digging of my own into some of the primary sources of their era. And it was very charming to see that there were lots of references to debutante balls and um, coming out parties, et cetera, using cellophane as a decorative element uh, for the parties. The trendiness of cellophane was set, no doubt, by its use in high fashion shoots, which Claire referenced. So it's just really fascinating from the pages of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar straight to high society event near you, Um, you know, both in terms of perhaps dress and also interior design. And I just thought that was super interesting. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider incorporating a little transparency into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. And we will, of course, be posting images of some of the fabulous cellophane fashions on our Instagram this week. You can find them at dress underscore podcast, which is where you can also DM us with episode suggestions and questions. You can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com as well. And thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Dress. The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.